Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So finally, finally, we come to the fulfillment, right? We've kind of seen where we started. We've seen what went wrong. We've seen the promise that it's going to get better. And we've even heard a plan that God has to make it all better. And now we're going to talk about the fulfillment. The fulfillment's a really big deal. It's one of those things where it's interesting, though, because for many of us, our introduction to God was through the fulfillment. We never heard the promise or knew the plan or or didn't have sort of the thousands of years of wrestling with the reality of the fallen world that the Hebrews did. They were waiting for the Messiah for so long that when he came, it was a very big deal. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says, let us not go back to the beginning. Let us leave the elementary teachings about the Messiah, about Christ, and move on. To, to maturity. And a lot of us as Christians, we hear that as saying to us, let's move on from the gospel to something bigger, something better. The gospel is like the first thing we hear, it's our introduction. So we sort of assume that there must be gospel, you know, the advanced class, gospel, the sequel, but there isn't. What we miss is that gospel is the fulfillment. The gospel is the, is, I mean, there's, There's more of the story, obviously. We're still here on the earth, and not the curse hasn't totally been wiped out. Not everything's been brought under unity under Christ yet. But the gospel is really the beginning of that last chapter. It is the fulfillment of all of it for us. And so sometimes we miss the big deal of it. So I hope that by going through the foundation as we've done, you can at least begin to grasp a little bit how important this is. But because it's also so important, because so much happens, because the fulfillment of the plan in our lives is so rich, and so thorough, we're going to give it two weeks. And so we're going to do this a little bit Hebraically. One of the things that the Hebrews were fond of doing in the way they write, you see this in Genesis, you see this in Proverbs, you see this in the Psalms all over the place, you see it in some of their histories, you see it over and over. And one of the ways they like to write is they like to give an overview, and then they like to repeat it all with the details. So tonight, we're going to do the overview. And next week, we're going to repeat it all with the details. So here's the overview. What are we talking about? What is the fulfillment? Well, the fulfillment is already mentioned. It is the gospel. Romans 1, 16, and I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence. Do not worry. Those of you who might be concerned about that, we're going to finish this verse before we're done this evening. But we're going to start. I just want to grab this verse in two pieces. So we get the first part first and the second part second. And I know that sounds obvious, but as non-Hebraic thinkers, sometimes we rush when there's a first part and a second part, we skim over the first part to get to the second part because we're in a hurry to get somewhere. It's like those people who, who pass you and speed up so they can get to the red light before you do. Exactly. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation. I think when we talk about the gospel, the place we need to start is remembering the gospel is not just a message. It's not, it's certainly not even primarily, if at all, a response. In our culture, a lot of times in our churches, we've kind of taught the gospel as if it's a response. We've jumped to part two of our two parts. And we've said to people, you need to respond to the gospel without being clear about what that even is. The gospel is not a response. 
The response is the response. The gospel is good news. But with God, as with everything else in his holiness, good news isn't just good news you hear. It's good news that has power. It's good news that is so good it changes things. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this message of good news, because it is, in fact, the power of God. So what we see here is that the, the, good, the gospel is, is the fulfillment here. It's the good news about what God has done. It's not just a gesture or an intent to do something. It's the power behind God's doing something for us. We hear from this message, and even if you've never heard anything else about the gospel, what we know so far is that the gospel is, is something that God has done to bring salvation. God has used his power to bring that plan to bear to bring salvation. And it's important we start here that it's about God's promise and God's plan being fulfilled. The gospel is not a burden upon you. It's not a requirement of you. It's not a command for you. It's not a waiting upon you. It's something God has done. It's not even something God is going to do. Now, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. There's a future sense to it. But at this moment, as we speak about the gospel in our lives, it's something God has done. And it's a power, and it's good news, and it's for our salvation. I just want to walk through some verses that talk about the gospel, that say what they are. Because I want us to ask the question for a moment. Let's, let's visit it as if we've never heard it before. Let's just hear, so we know so far that the gospel, the good news, is that God has done something for our salvation. Now, let's hear verses and see what does God's power do? What has it done? Even if some of these verses touch on a response, let's not worry about the response for now. Don't worry, we'll get there. Because I don't want us to confuse the idea that what the message of Scripture is, is that we have a message of good news to share, and the good news is what God has done. It is not the requirement of what you must do. Here's a really famous one. See this at baseball games? Used to, anyway. People would hold up the signs so that it would be on TV I guess the hope was that people would be watching baseball and suddenly be struck with the need to go get their Bible and look it up. I'm not quite sure how that works, but <laughs> God can work in all sorts of ways. Baseball games are long. And base, you're right. I get bored of baseball games, so maybe I do understand it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We actually learned a couple of things because of the foundations we've walked through. We can now make some connections, and we learned a couple of really key things here about the gospel. One is he just reiterates what we've already said, that the purpose of the gospel is not to condemn the world, but to save the world. There's power here, power to rescue, power for salvation for the whole world. But we learned something else. Remember that for the Hebrews, they already knew part of how this plan, and we do too because we walk through the foundations. We know part of how this plan is supposed to unfold. We know what the gospel is supposed to include. It's supposed to include the Messiah, the hero, the chosen one, the anointed one. And in this verse, we learn something really amazing. And that's that the Messiah is that second person of the Trinity himself. That this triune God, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Messiah is not just a human being not just a special anointed individual that, that it's, has a temporal existence, but the Messiah is himself one member of the triune eternal God, the Son, Jesus. 
it's really amazing. And if you think about it, the fact that the role of the Messiah is to save the world, it begins to make sense that, of course, only God can do that. King David couldn't do it. He was as close as they'd ever seen. Moses couldn't do it. He was as close as they'd ever seen. Abraham couldn't do it. John the Baptist couldn't do it. Elijah couldn't do it. Of course God is the only one that could save the world. So you think now imagine what it's like if you're, if you're one of the Hebrews and when you have this dawning revelation that the Messiah you've been waiting for is God himself and you look back over all the messages of the Old Testament and you think, of course. Who made the promise? God did. Who made the plan? God did. Of course God himself. But the other amazing part of the promise and the plan was that it would be through the lineage of a human being. So God has to become a man to do this. Right, in, right away, we find one of the most startling evidences and examples of God's power being demonstrated in his gospel. I don't know if we can begin to grasp, but in my head, it is mind-blowingly large. It, it feels like almost the most powerful thing, certainly at the, at the top of the list. If we were to rank God's most powerful acts, this is a silly thing to do, I understand. But... But if we were to rank God's most powerful acts, the creation of the universe would have to be there, right? That, that, that's amazing, right? We're going to get to the resurrection, overcoming death. That, that's, that's incredible. But, but right in there, right in the list of the most powerful things that God has ever done, this ability to take a God who is completely other, who is transcendent, who exists at all times, in all places, and who is spirit, and squeeze all that divine, transcendent power into a package that is small at a specific time and a specific place, and then to live in that specific time and place for 33 years in a little teeny, teeny, tiny body. It just blows my mind. I don't, I don't even know how that works. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, there are necessary tensions you cannot explain. Because this understanding, this idea is so large that I don't think our brains can comprehend it. Like, just to give you one, here's a, here's a fun one. I, I, I love to think about this. No, I don't, because I can't answer it. But I love to tweak the rest of you with this. So here's the question. Did Jesus as a baby know that he was God? Well, on the one hand, you want to say, well, he always knew he was God. But on the other hand, can a baby brain even comprehend such a thing? And if you say yes, well, what if I push you back further? Did he know in the womb? It says that he grew in wisdom. How does the perfect God grow in wisdom? How does he learn stuff when he already knows everything? It's just, it's mind-blowing. And I don't really think we're supposed to answer those questions, by the way. Or if you just want to say, yes, he knew he was God, I won't argue with you because I certainly can't prove otherwise. Or if you want to say, no, I don't think he knew, I won't argue with you, but I'll, I'll tease you a little bit and say, well, when did it happen? <laughs> what age did his brain become capable of comprehending all the mysteries of the universe? Maybe it has nothing to do with the brain. Maybe God's knowingness goes beyond the biological brain. Maybe that's the problem. Point is, it's huge, isn't it? What we're talking about, the ability to incarnate himself, that's a huge power. Only a completely sovereign entity could lay aside all his sovereignty in such an effective manner. And of course, as a triune God, even while he does that, God the Father continues to be present everywhere at all times. The Holy Spirit continues to be present everywhere at all times. 
Jesus prays to the Father who knows everything. People ask Jesus questions. He says, I don't know the answer to that, but my Father does. And your brain goes, how does this work? I don't know. Because the idea of a transcendent God squeezing himself into the package of a body, there's just way too much confusion for me to handle. How does that work? What does that mean? But that's one of the things that happened. That's part of the power of the gospel. Is that Jesus, God, sent his son, part of the triune God, to be the Messiah. And for reasons that may not be entirely clear, although the scripture does give us some hints of the necessity of this, for reasons that may not be entirely clear, it was important that our Messiah be both human and God. That he come through the lineage of, of man, of Eve, like the promise had said, and that he be God all-powerful. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, same author. You'll notice this sounds very similar to what John says in John chapter 3, not a surprise. In fact, if you read 1 John in the Gospel of John, there's a lot of similarities because all of us tend to repeat ourselves. And he says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is similar to John 3.16, but the emphasis here that John makes is the initiation of God. Something that is there in John 3.16, but now John makes it even more clear. He says that love isn't about what we do. This is why it's so important we don't look at the gospel as a, as a burden upon us. The gospel is a reflection, a good news, a statement, a declaration of God's love for us. How do we know what love is? Not because of your adoration of God, but because of God's love for us. He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And we see this word, atoning sacrifice. It's one word in the, in the Greek, sorry. But it's this idea that somehow Jesus sacrificed himself for us to make us clean. To remove the stain of the corruption that we talked about as part of what it means to be human. But I also want to say that the idea that God is using his power to demonstrate his love here, John's point is not that it's a calculated thing. It's not like God said, I'm going to demonstrate my power and I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to use my power just to demonstrate a love, to make them think I love them. No, it's, it's an inevitable thing. God does love us. So the only way he can use his power is in ways which demonstrates that love to us. So we have this picture now of the Messiah, which is transforming from what the Hebrews had initially thought. For us, we may have heard it this way before. But for the Hebrews, they're, they're, they're learning that the Messiah was not just a king, an earthly king, a human king who would create an earthly kingdom. They're learning that the Messiah is God himself come to earth in a little tiny package. And that he came to earth in this little tiny package not to take over the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world. To offer himself somehow as a sacrifice. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5.8. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did he wait for us to get better? No, because God knew what we often forget. That we can't get better. Not on our own. Not by our own power. Because we are corrupted and tainted and limited as humans. God didn't wait for us to get better while we were still sinners, while we were still wicked, as he says later, while we were enemies of God. He died for us. And he demonstrates the incredible strength of his love that way. 
But both this idea that Christ died for us and that he's an atoning sacrifice, we begin to see unfolding this idea that, again, for the Hebrews, would have been very perplexing to many of them. The zealots had hoped that the Messiah, had believed that the Messiah would come to run a new kingdom and to run the Romans out of town. Many of the, the Hebrews believed that what they were waiting for was a Messiah who would, who would be a benevolent king, maybe even gather the nations together, but do it through conquering. But now we're being told that the Messiah demonstrated his power and his love and gained our victory through his own sacrifice, through his death. And again, as a Hebrew, as a Jew, they must have read that and then suddenly looked backwards at prophecies and realized they had been there all along. Isaiah says this, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It's interesting, these verses here are the same verses that a eunuch is reading. He's sitting in a carriage and he's reading these verses, and Philip later comes up to him and the eunuch says to Philip, who is the prophet talking about here? Is he talking about himself? And Philip says, nope. He's talking about the Messiah. And it goes on, it says, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to our own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all we have this weird transaction which if you don't think it's strange you probably didn't hear it clearly but we have this weird transaction where jesus takes the messiah comes to sacrifice himself to die because somehow in taking our punishment upon himself, the curse that was given in the garden, the death and the, and the, the punishment for our sins, somehow in doing that, it brings us peace, reconciliation with God. And you might say, why would it do that? And I say, I don't know. But as a Jew, you might start thinking back and realizing that even though Scripture doesn't explain why this happens, it does point to the necessity of this. It does point to this being the plan from the very beginning. You think back to the Passover, which you celebrate every single year, and you think you're celebrating the Passover just to be reminded that you were led out of Egypt and that you were protected from death by what? by a lamb that was sacrificed and the blood was put on the doorpost. And as a Jew, maybe you never said, why would the blood of the lamb have protected us from the death passing over us? You never worried about why, because you knew it was part of your history. You just knew it was. And now you're told that was merely a picture, a shadow, a hint the plan of God, something in the nature of the universe, something in everything that God is and everything that we understand and everything we don't understand, something in the way everything functions means that the sacrifice of Jesus, of the Messiah, was necessary for death to pass over us. To undo the curse required that he take 
Be quiet, Siri. To undo the curse required that he take our punishment upon himself. There is a discomfort with this notion nowadays among some believers, and I accept that. I understand the discomfort, and it's okay to even argue about the nature of this. The truth of the gospel and the death on the cross and how it leads to our salvation is that it is so deep, it is so profound, it is so wedded to eternal things beyond our comprehension that I think it's okay if we use lots of different pictures and different stories to try to explain why it does what it does. But the one thing you cannot do is deny that this is the way it's explained that the Messiah saved us was by his death. Mark 10, Jesus says this of himself. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's as if we've all been sold into slavery, says Paul elsewhere. It's as if at the curse what happened is we ran up a debt that was too high to pay. And the Jews understood there were laws that said when you ran up a debt that was too high to pay, one, oppor one, one opportunity you had was to sell your labor, to sell yourself essentially as a bondservant to the person to whom you owed the debt and work for him until the debt was paid off. But it's as if at the fall what happened is we, we sold our, our lives, the bondage was so heavy that we sold ourselves to the devil, to the Satan, to deception, to sin, and the debt could never be paid. That we would work and labor and, and serve as slaves under sin for all of our lives and then die before the debt could be paid off. And so Jesus came not to be served, not as the King Messiah they were thinking he was coming as, not for people to respond to him as he conquers them, but he came in order to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a word that scripture uses to describe this, this idea that God is using his power to save us and that he's doing that because he loves us and not as a response to us. You notice all these verses say God demonstrated his love. It's not about our love for him. He didn't wait until we weren't sinners anymore. He loved us. The good news is at its most basic that we have a God of the universe who loves us and has the power to enact, to act upon that love to rescue us, to save us. And the word the scripture begins to use for that in the New Testament is grace. Grace is a big word. We don't define it well. I just want to say this. Sometimes we define grace merely as God's love for us, that he's benevolent and he desires to do good things for us. But the truth is that grace is more often in the New Testament spoken of as his power. I think it is true that it is his unconditional love for us. It is that initiative of love. It is that demonstration. It is the love that comes from him because of who he is and not because of what you've done. But it's not just a, a sense of, it's not just a desire of well-being for you, which if not connected to power, doesn't go very far. We, uh, I'll make this really brief. I don't want to go into details about this, but um, my family had an interaction with a, a young gal last night who unfortunately was homeless and, and, and had some mental uh, illness, for sure, and, and needed a place to stay. And, and uh, several of us uh, wrestled for hours with her to try to get her some help. But the truth is, we weren't able to, partly because she didn't want it, partly because there wasn't help to be given. The resources didn't exist for some of what she needed. We personally 
couldn't make her well. I believe it wasn't fruitless. I believe that if you have an opportunity to show someone they're not alone for a few hours and that someone cares about them, and if that's all you can do, it's something. I think God can use that and work through that. And we did what we could and left her to God. But the thing about God is his well-wishing goes further than mine. (laughs) He has the power. He has the resources. He can do what needs to be done. He can change what needs to be changed. Uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14 says this, for the grace of God. And I'd like you to think about the grace of God. I think it's a good way to think of it as God's power and desire to do good to you. They are inevitably, integrally part of who he is. You can't make him more powerful and you can't make him want to do good to you more than he already does. They're infinite, both of them. You don't, you don't earn his desire to do good to you. He wants to do it before, while you were still sinners. So the grace of God, this power and love for you, it says the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So you can see here that the grace of God is not just well-wishing, it's power. It's power to redeem us. It's power to make us even eager to do what is good. It's power even to change our hearts. It not only forgives us, but empowers us with holiness. I challenge pastors a lot. If they just will meditate and struggle struggle and wrestle with one verse as they think about discipleship. How, how do I disciple my congregation? How do I teach them to be godly and not worldly? How do I teach them self-control and to live upright and godly lives? How do I teach them to have hope for the Lord to come? And I say to them, what does Titus say? What teaches them? Is it the law? Is it your inspirational words? Is it your fantastic sermons? Is it your great programs? No, it's the power of God. (laughs) It's the grace of God. It's the love of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to serve and save. And that is what he will do. So we begin to see this good news. It's powerful. It's far-reaching. It changes us. It offers salvation. It teaches us to live self-controlled and godly lives. How does this work? 2 Corinthians 5.21 takes the mystery of how this work and works and just makes it even more mysterious. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Jesus, pure and holy and without sin, says this verse, is made to be sin for us. Or if you prefer the translation, equally possible, he's made to be our atonement of sin like we saw before but in either case what it's saying is that all our sin is placed upon jesus he dies on the cross and it's like all our sin dies with him and we instead get the righteousness not our own righteousness but his it's like a weird transaction in which he says you give me your sin and in return i'll give you righteousness that's a really bad deal for him But somehow in that death on the cross, this is what it tells us happens. There's not just a transaction, but a transformation. Where we become 
the righteousness of God. Paul uses the word holy. Oh, there's that word holy. We become other. We become different and set apart. It's not the identical holiness to God because we'll never be as other as God because only he is that holy. But it is a holiness that is a shadow, a reflection, a mirror of that holiness of God. Not simply meaning a purity of heart, but that we now are different people set apart. It changes who we are. We become the righteousness of God. I will be the first to admit this is a very strange plan. I wrote a, for a while in my life, I used to write a Christmas song every year, and I haven't done that for a few years, but one of the years I wrote a, a Christmas song in which I, what I really wanted to do was try to express how weird Christmas is. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to try to express how strange the gospel is. This whole notion of God becoming man and living a life and then dying and taking our sin and his sin dies and we become the righteousness of God. talked in the song about how the gospel that he's given us is wonderful and odd. And we forget this strangeness is the very gift of God. We sometimes want things wrapped up neatly and simply. But it's weird. But it's because it's the power of God. It's not simply a little story. It's not simply a religious creed. So let's look at just very briefly, this is our overview. We'll go into details on some of these things next week, but this is our overview. What is the gospel of grace? First of all, that term, gospel of grace, let's just remind you, it means this is the good news of God's power and desire to do good to you. If we share the gospel with people in ways that don't express that we're sharing the good news of God's love for them, of God's powerful love for them, then we're not sharing the gospel in the same way that Paul did. Same way that Peter did, same way that John did, same way that James did, same way that Philip did. The gospel of grace is the power of God expressed in his love and desire to do good for us. He came not to condemn or even command, but to redeem. He came to undo the curse. He came to rescue you. He came to serve you. And what does this include? Well, we've learned these things from these verses. It includes the incarnation, this incredible idea, this incredible revelation that the Messiah is God himself willingly stooping down to meet you. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever just walked by a, a, an adult and a, and a child talking? And, and have you ever been struck by when the adult is kneeling down to be on the same level with the child? What a sort of gentle movement that is. There's a real mark of equality there. You're literally not going to talk down to that child. <laughs> well, Jesus did that. He knelt down, and it was a long way down. He stooped. David even says that at one point. He says of God, it's your gentleness that makes me great. And what's interesting is that term, your gentleness makes me great, he actually uses a Hebrew idiom, which means gentleness. He says, you stoop low to make me great. We know that it includes the crucifixion somehow that Jesus took all our wickedness and the curse of death and he completed that curse. He fulfilled it so it was all done 
and he did it in one final large cosmic moment which radiates throughout the universe in all directions so that the prophets before and the prophets after, the faithful before and the faithful after all receive the same salvation. And we know there's the resurrection. We'll get to some verses that talk about that in a second. But he not only fulfilled the curse, but in doing so, he somehow overcame it. He defeated death. Only he had the resources to pay the debt and still live. And all of this leads to our redemption. Not only our ransom from the devil and sin, but even our redemption and ransom from ourselves. That we're made new. We're made new. There are these terms, justification, sanctification, and glorification, which simply mean we're made new at a moment, and then we're made new in other ways throughout the course of our life, and then we're made new even in our body again at a moment. We're going to talk about that in the details next week. But we see that in the Gospels. So this is how we have to remember and how we have to present the gospel to ourselves and to other people. First and foremost, it's this incredible story of cosmic love and rescue. There's a reason that books like the Chronicles of Narnia and the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe resonate with people. Because they present a story that they don't even recognize in the gospel. I'm amazed how many people I know who know the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when I say to them, C.S. Lewis was a Christian and what he was writing was a story that was supposed to be reflective, was supposed to mirror the gospel as we know it. And they say, whoa, I had no idea. Well, that's on us. If they don't hear the reflections of the real gospel in the Chronicles of Narnia, we've done a bad job of reflecting the gospel, haven't we? But there's so many stories like that which talk about the, 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 the benevolence of a God that loves us so much that he would substitute his very life for us. This is first and foremost the story. It's this incredible, amazing, beautiful, cosmic story of the love and rescue of an eternal God for his created beings. Something that God has done. Now, once that's presented, once people understand that the gospel is good news about what God has done and not a call upon them, not a command or a burden upon them to do anything, once they understand that it's upon, that this is, that this is what's presented, it is true that just as God in the garden let Adam and Eve choose if they were going to trust him or not, God still doesn't force anything upon anyone. And the mere presenting of the gospel and the action of what God does does not require that people who would rather live outside the garden enter the garden. As unbelievable as it appears, it's still possible for people to choose no. To hear everything God has done and say, I don't want that newness. I don't want that ransom. I don't want that redemption. I want to stay in my bondage. I want to live as a slave. I want to die cursed. <laughs> Ultimately, the reason that this is turned down, I think, is for the same reason that Adam and Eve turned it down in the first place. It's a refusal to accept our need for salvation. It's a refusal to accept our human frailty, to accept that we are just not equipped to decide for ourselves our own lives. I know how hard that sounds to say to somebody, you can't live your own life. <laughs> yeah, that's why people turn it down. 
But that is ultimately what God is reversing here, is this notion that we can make our lives work. We are required to make our lives work. We have to decide what's right and what's wrong and how to live our lives. And God says, you've had thousands of years as a human species. How's that? If he were Dr. Phil, he might say, how's that working for you? How's that going? We're not equipped to decide for ourselves our own lives and even our ethics. And that's what's included in the gospel as well. And that's why if we continue the verse in Romans, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I want to be really clear, because we are such a how-to society. And we are so immersed as a human species, we're so immersed in, in thinking that we need to earn things and wanting to be able to boast in our own abilities. And so even here, we hear the gospel, everything we just shared, it's the power of God for the salvation. And then we hear for everyone who believes and we latch onto that and we say, okay, good, then I need to believe and I need to believe hard enough and I need to believe in the right way and I need to believe with the right ideas. And then if I do that, then I get saved and then we go around and talk to each other about how faithful we are or not and how well you believe versus how well I believe. And then pretty soon we're boasting about the salvation that only came because of the power of God that he demonstrated for us while we were still sinners, not because we did anything right. That's the wrong way to look at what it means here when he says it's a salvation for everyone who believes. I'd like you to think of it this way for a moment. Let's pretend, let's go on a journey here. Let's pretend I come to your house tomorrow and I knock on the door and I say, I have incredible news for you. You may not believe it, but I hope you do, because this is crazy. You know how I used to work at the Apple store, right? Well, Tim Cook called me yesterday. I don't know why. Apparently he heard about my fabulous work there and he gave me a call and he wanted me to tell you that he has set up a bank account in your name. Yeah, this was disappointing for me because it's about you. But he wanted me to tell you <laughs> that he set up a bank account in your name. It's your bank account. And there's $100 million in it. And it's all yours. He, he, is, he has removed his own access to the account. He's not going to ask for it back. It's not a loan. It's in your name. It is your money. And he sent me here to give you this ATM card and this bank account number. Do you want it? Now think about this for a moment. Tim Cook has the power to change our lives, yes? He absolutely does. I'm pretty sure he doesn't have the desire to do so, which is why this story isn't going to happen. But let's pretend for a moment that he did, for some reason, desire to change our lives by giving you, your life, by giving you $100 million in your own bank account. So he's got the power and he's got the desire and he puts them together and the account exists. Now, that has the power to change your life, but only if you believe it. Do you see that? What if I come to you and I hand you that? And most of you, if this actually happened, would you believe me? No, you'd be wise not to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, totally. You would be wise to believe this was a scam because, again, the idea that Tim Cook cares about you is, frankly, unlikely. He doesn't know you. He doesn't know me. I was joking about, you know, my fabulous work. No, I was fabulous at the Apple Store, but he still doesn't know me. But, but think about it. 
that power, that account, if you never use that ATM card, if you never look in that account, if you never believe it's there, if you throw away the ATM card and you throw away the account slip, whatever, the money's still there. The power is available, but is it any, does it have any power in your life? None. So let's say, though, that you do believe me because I am just a believable guy. And so you're like, wow, Dave wouldn't lie to me. So this is weird. Well, what's the PIN number? And I tell you, it's 6666. Yeah, I know, it's a weird one for a pastor to pick. But let's say that's the, that's the PIN number. And you go to the, to the ATM and you put in 6666 and it pulls up an account and the balance is $100 million. And I'm pretty sure ATM machines won't do this, but let's say you take out a million dollars. Actually, I doubt they even have that much money in them. But <laughs> So a couple hours later, when all the 20s finally come through, <laughs> you take that, and now we can say Tim Cook. The good news is that Tim Cook provided you an account which has the power to change your life because you believe. But wouldn't it be weird if you then took that money and you went to someone else in the church and you said, did you get $100 million? And they said, no. And you said to them, yeah, you probably just didn't believe enough. Wouldn't that be weird and wrong? <laughs> They'd be like, well, I'll, I'll believe in Tim Cook. He's pretty easy to believe in. I see him on TV all the time. And you'd be like, yeah, you just, you just have to, I learned the secret to life. You just have to believe really hard. You'd, you'd be wrong. You'd have missed the whole point, wouldn't you? Your belief is not what did it. If you met Tim Cook someday and you were like, I'm so glad that I believed so hard enough that you gave me money, he'd be like, that's not why I gave you money. And I kind of want it back now. You know, he'd, he'd not, that wouldn't be it. You're missing the point. If you say, because I believed Jesus saved me, you're missing the point. Jesus saved you because he wanted to. By saying the power of God is the salvation for those who believe, he's only indicating that the power of God is salvation. But if you do not say yes, if you do not use the PIN number, if you don't accept that it's there, well, then it doesn't have power for you. Not because you didn't earn it, but you just turned your back on it. So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is simply indicating, where does our righteousness come from? Not from our faith. It comes from Jesus at the cross, right? But how are you going to live on that 100 million? You know, by your ATM card. But that doesn't mean the ATM card is magic. It's just the way you say yes. Also, think about this. If you don't believe me and you throw the ATM card away, and then you find out that other people in the church did receive $100 million and they're enjoying their, their $100 million, is it fair of you to blame Tim Cook or me because you didn't get it? Not only that, is it even reasonable for you to demand, let's say you get the ATM card and you're like, I kind of believe in the account, but I don't like this ATM card. It's the wrong color. Is it really reasonable for you to demand that you access the money differently? Or what if you're like, I don't want it in that account. I want it in this account 
the number is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because I like that number. Well, that account's empty. Is it reasonable for you to demand that the money be in that account when the money is in another account to which you freely have access? We do not earn the grace of God by our faith. It is so important we grasp that. We do not get God's attention by our faith. We do not create the gospel by all means by our faith. How long has this plan existed? From before your creation, from before your parents' creation, from before the creation of the entire universe. Imagine a negotiation. Imagine a negotiation. So why do people say no to the account? Imagine a negotiation where you get everything you want and the other person gives up everything for you to get it, right? You're sitting at the negotiation table, you're ready to negotiate, and the person on the other side says, wait, stop, before we negotiate, you can have everything you want, and I'm going to give up everything so that you can have everything you want. Why would you say no? I can only think of three reasons you might say no. Number one, you don't trust the person on the other side of the table. You're like, well, that just sounds dumb, and I don't believe you. There's something you're hiding here. Let me get my lawyer. Number two, you believe you can get what you want another way, and for some reason you just don't like this guy and don't want it from him. So you're like, well, I'll just figure out another way. Or number three, you actually don't know what you want. And he says to you, here you can have everything you want, and you're like, hmm, $100 million, uh, prestige, power, great reputation, no, I don't want all that. You just don't know what you want. I think the same is true with the gospel. I think the only reason that this is the negotiation God has with us, he doesn't say you do X, Y, and Z, and I'll give you X, Y, and Z. He says you can have life and holiness and righteousness and freedom and joy. You can have everything you've been created for, and I will give up everything so that you can have it. But we don't trust him. That's why faith is the reference point. Because it simply means, oh, I believe I should say yes because what he's offering is genuine. Or you think you can get it another way. But that's just the repeat of the Adam and Eve problem, isn't it? Or you just don't know what you want. You think mistakenly that the things you have, the things you're working for, the reputation, the prestige, the riches, the things I used in our fake negotiation, you think that those are life. And what Jesus is offering you is really life. But in all these cases, the problem is not that you are not earning the grace of God. The problem is you simply are not willing to say yes. Faith is not creating God's grace or earning his love. It is simply saying yes to both. Romans 4, he goes on to say this. He says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We're going to talk about that justification next week. But again, basic idea, somehow by dying on the cross, he took our sins with him. We were forgiven and pardoned and removed from our sins. But more than that, as he comes back to life, we are justified. We're made holy, righteous. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, again, not that faith justified us, but faith was simply the yes it's like we received money through our ATM card. No, you received it through Tim Cook, but that's fair enough shorthand. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith 
into the grace in which we now stand. The grace is there. The faith simply says yes and walks in. And notice this. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We don't boast in our faith. We don't boast in our ability to earn it. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? That he loved you so much that he gave up everything that you could live. Acts 10 says this, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's just a nice summary. Isn't it? Of the things we've seen, of the gospel. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Hear how they share the gospel. It's the message of the forgiveness of sins. It's proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from most of their sins. Is that what it says? No, every sin. Every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You had Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, but did that really cleanse you from every sin? No, it didn't. And it didn't cleanse you from the sins that occurred the day after Yom Kippur. But guess what? Sometimes people say, you know, when people first get saved, they wrestle with that, right? They're like, well, I got saved and I meant it, but then a day later I committed a sin. Am I still forgiven for that sin? Because that was kind of in the future. And I remind them that all your sins happened after Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> so, yeah. They're all covered, all of them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What does that mean? Does that mean you're not working hard enough? No, it means don't take Tim Cook's money in vain, meaning it's worthless if it just sits in the account and you never say yes. Don't take God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. If you are hearing this now and you have not said yes, the point the author here is making is, there isn't a better moment than now. And if you miss that now, guess what? It's now, now. And if you miss that now, guess what? There's not a better moment than now. Or now, or now. The other Hebrew says it this way, as long as today is today, it's the right day. Is it today? Yes. Oh yeah, it is. God did it. God is offering you his very life, his righteousness. We take the body and blood at communion sometimes, not just as a reminder of what God did for us, but as a way of saying yes, accepting that he offers us himself. It is weird. Peter didn't like it. He said, it feels awkward. Jesus said, you either accept all of me or none of me. You have to stop worrying about the moment, the amount of conviction, the purity of your faith, the certainty you hold, whether you have too many questions, whether you've made yourself ready, whether you've done what you need to do, whether you've reconciled with your friends. You have to stop worrying about all that. All you need to do is say yes to the gift. The rest will be worked out better after you've said yes. This is one of the hardest things when I share people with the gospel for them to understand. 
They want to get things in a row. They want to make sure they understand it well enough. They want to make sure they haven't missed out on something else. I am telling you, with full conviction of someone who has given as much as I know how to give to the gospel, all your questions will be better sorted out after you've said yes. You want to budget what to do with Tim Cook's money before you have it? Get the money first, then work on your budget. <laughs> Questions are fine. Not being ready is fine. Being weak of faith is fine. Being only half sure that you understand is normal. Say yes. That's all that's required. What holds you back? Consider the possibility that if something still holds you back, consider the possibility it's just still your own desire to be God, to decide your life for yourself. The fear that you'll miss out because you won't be in control. Consider the possibility that the only way you can miss out is if you don't let God be in control because he knows what is going to be best. I want to close with this benediction and then we're going to sing one more song. First Corinthians 15, three through 11 for what I received, I pat you guys come on up for what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and least of all, last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.